Good afternoon. My name is Brian Parks, and I'm the senior pastor here at Covenant Hope Church. Many of you know that um, last week I was in the United States. Uh, I wasn't here preaching. Mark preached in my place. I had gone home to be with my father. He had uh, bypass surgery, and many of you were praying for him and praying for me as I went to be with them. I want to thank you for that, and they pass on their thanks as well. My father's doing really well uh, by God's grace, and he's recovering and, um, and in good spirits in general. So thank you for praying for us uh, and for me while I was gone. But I'm glad to be back, really glad to be back with you and to preach to you from this last passage in the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, when I um, buy a new device, a new contraption, something that's fairly complicated, I usually open up the box, and inside I find two sets of instructions. One is thick and detailed. It explains every single aspect of this device. It talks all about all the features on the device. It tells me everything I need to know about it. It shows me how to troubleshoot the device. I usually throw that thing away. And I look for the quick start guide. I look for the quick start guide, which is included in any halfway complicated gadget or device that you buy these days. The quick start guide shows me in just a few pages how to get this thing up and running and working. And really, most of the time, it's really about all you need to know in order to operate whatever you bought. The Quick Start Guide is like an executive summary. It's telling you most of what you need to know to operate this. And as we get to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, King Solomon, or the preacher as we know him in this book, is basically giving us the executive summary or the quick start guide to life as he sees it. He's showing us what's most important in life. What do we really need to know? He's giving us his conclusions. So it's important that we listen and pay attention as we come to the end here. Let's read together here at the end of Ecclesiastes. Turn with me in your Bibles. Uh, it's just after... Uh, the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 7 is where we're beginning, and we're reading to the end, which is chapter 12, verse 14. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 7, so 12, 14. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life our vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light 
And the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray before we study God's Word. Heavenly Father, since we last gathered as a church to hear your Word, we have come under pressure from the world around us, and it's taught us to believe lies about you and about who we are. We've seen example after example of foolish decisions made by those around us, yet they were called wise or fun or just being true to myself. And in some ways, whether in our thinking or our actions or our words, we've imitated that foolishness and believed those lies. We need your word to reform us, to reshape us, to change our minds, replacing lies with truth, a hunger for self-advancement with a hunger for righteousness. We offer ourselves to you this morning to be conformed to the image of your Son, our Lord Jesus, through being attentive to your word, eager to hear whatever you want to teach us, and by setting out to obey it immediately in our lives. And Lord, this is all for your glory. Amen. Well, the big idea here at the very end of Ecclesiastes is enjoy life and fear God now before death and judgment come. Enjoy life and fear God now before death and judgment come. The outline of the sermon has three points to it. You might be helped if you want to write them down in advance. Enjoy life. Secondly, expect death. And thirdly, fear God. Enjoy life. 
expect death and fear God. Well, we have come to the end of the book. I know that many of you have told me how confusing and mysterious you've found this book to be as you've read along in your devotional times or maybe in small groups that you've gathered together with other people to read it. I hope that as we near the end, uh, you, your appreciation for this book of the Bible and for the wisdom that the preacher has for us has been greater. It's grown. And that your frustration with it has lessened as well. That you've understood it better that you've gleaned things from what he's been teaching us in this book. I know that I've grown in my love for this book of the Bible, and and I'll be honest, when we started this series, I was kind of afraid of it. But now I love it. I love it. Of course, you remember that the preacher, who is likely King Solomon, told us in the beginning of the book that life was vanity. Or in the Hebrew, the word is hevel. Hevel. He said at the very beginning of the book, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he said that word over and over again, 30 some odd times throughout the entire book. Vanity. Life is vanity or a frustrating mystery. That's how we've defined it. Life is a frustrating mystery to the preacher as he's thought about it. Life is a frustrating mystery to this wisest of men in the Old Testament. King Solomon was given incredible wisdom by God. And if it's a frustrating mystery to him, how could we expect it to be any more clear and simple for us? Well, here at the end of the book as well, he returns to that same declaration about life being vanity in verse 8 of chapter 11. And so those two verses, chapter 1, verse 2, where he repeats the word vanity over five times, and here in chapter 11, verse 8, those two verses are like bookends to the entire book. They're like the covers on the book, the front cover and the back cover telling us also about the major theme in the book. And so now at the end of his writing, he hasn't changed his mind that life in God's world, which is stained by sin, is a frustrating mystery. But he wants to offer us a conclusion. He wants to offer us some final advice. And so let's dive in. The first thing that he wants to tell us is to enjoy life. Enjoy life. We see that in chapter 11, verses 7 through 10. Two times the preacher of Ecclesiastes commands us, his readers, to rejoice in life. And you can count it a third time if you include this phrase, let your heart cheer you. This is the seventh time that he's commanded enjoyment throughout the entire book and rejoicing in life. He launches into his argument in verse 7 by saying that light is sweet and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So light and seeing represent goodness. He's telling us that life is good. Life is a gift from God. And then in verse 8, he says, so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. 
but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. He's telling us and his original readers as well, rejoice in all that God gives in life, even with the sure knowledge that there will be days of darkness, meaning hardship and suffering, perhaps affliction. Even though life is a frustrating mystery, enjoy life. But he qualifies who should rejoice. He does that, and he begins doing that in verse 9. He says, rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes. And he refers to youth again in verse 10, and then even uses the term dawn of life, which means youth. Remove vexation from your heart, he says in verse 10, and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. When he says remove vexation from your heart, the preacher is saying remove sorrow, remove unhappiness, remove bitterness. And then the phrase put away pain, or maybe what could be translated evil, from your body, he's essentially saying the same thing with different words. Rejoice in the life that God has given you. Now, before you rule yourself out because you think that you're not a youth, that uh, the author's not speaking to you, I think it's safe to say that the preacher is speaking about anyone who's not truly old and on the verge of death. And so that means everyone in the room, really. You should consider yourselves included in these commands and instructions. He's not just speaking to Paul Senna or Aaliyah Formosa or anyone else who's under the age of 18 here in the room. But I wonder, I wonder, did you catch the fact that enjoying life, rejoicing in the days that God gives you is a command? It's not optional. It's mandatory. In other words, it's a sin to not enjoy the life that God gives you. You know, when the people of Israel stood on the edge of the promised land, Moses reminded them that the curses of God's covenant would come to them. And here's a quote from Moses. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of an abundance of all things that God had given you. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 47. Refusing to delight in what God has given is, it's equal to rebellion against God. It's essentially saying, that won't do God. You're going to have to do better for me. What you've given me is not good enough. Or think of the Apostle Paul writing his letter to the Philippian church from his prison cell in Rome, telling them over and over again that he's rejoicing in the life that God had given him and commanding the Philippians as well, who were under persecution, who were hard-pressed by their enemies, telling them to rejoice as well. It was a command. Rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice, Paul tells them. Or think of Jesus 
Jesus, the Savior of the world, who was repeatedly criticized for attending parties with the wrong people, who spent his three years in ministry surrounded by a host of friends who loved to dine at table with people and welcomed children everywhere he went. Jesus was a man of joy. Far, far from some of the motion picture images of Jesus, you know, stern, grave. It's hard to think about this command to enjoy life now and not think about the pastor, John Piper, who coined the idea of Christian hedonism. I don't know if you've heard that phrase, Christian hedonism. What John Piper meant by that was basically that God intended us to most glorify him when we're most satisfied in him. He taught that idea that that was a central focus, he thought, of the Christian life communicated in the scriptures. Now, of course, the preacher here isn't telling us to indulge in sin. He does say, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. You know, in the West, all the beer advertisements always have the instruction stated somewhere, please drink responsibly or please enjoy responsibly. And so the preacher here is likewise urging rejoice responsibly. Or as one commentator put it creatively, joy was created to dance with goodness, not alone. But because enjoying God's good gift of life is a command, we should expect that we're going to be held accountable at the judgment, not only for whether we were responsible, in other words, holy and pure, but also simply for whether or not we enjoyed the life that God gave us, whether we rejoiced. If you don't consider yourself a Christian, I wonder what you think about this command to enjoy life. Does it surprise you? I wonder if you've been thinking of the God of the Bible as an angry taskmaster who wants to take away joy and fun in your life. I hope, I hope you see here in the scriptures that God is the author of joy. He's the one who invented joy. He's the one who made pleasure and desire and fun and enjoyment. God's the one who's given it. Why not take lessons about joy from the one who made it? Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you think of enjoying life as a command from God? Or do you just think of it as optional? Even in the hard times, rejoicing in what God has given. Think of how poor a witness it is to be a miserable Christian. <laughs> it's, it's such a poor witness to be overly serious or to be unwilling to let go of sadness and melancholy, to not seek out actively joy and rejoicing. Oftentimes, we're like that, I think, simply to get attention from the people around us. Rather, do you remember that it's God who made it so pleasurable to laugh until you cried and, and, and to laugh until your sides hurt? It's God who made that possible. God who invented that. Or, or that it's God who made food taste so good. 
Or that when you fall into bed at the end of the day and your sheets and your pillow feel so good, it's a gift from God. That's from God. One of the ways that we can obey this command to rejoice in life is actually to enjoy one another in the community of the church. I think that's one of the chief ways we can. Gathering together to laugh and to play games together glorifies God, and it's one way to obey this command of God. You know, I I see a lot of that happening in our church. I'm so thankful for it. I see you gathering together throughout the week and on the weekends, enjoying one another. I want to see it happen even more as well. I want to see it multiplied. I want to see more people invited into it. Invite one another into your homes. Invite one another to gather for meals. Gather for outings. Be together. Revel in one another. And by the way, isn't it a powerful witness to the God of joy when we invite our non-Christian friends into events and situations where we're enjoying one another and the good gifts of God are evidenced among us? Isn't that one of the chief ways that we can begin to bear witness to who God is? One of the most powerful steps towards sharing your faith with a non-Christian friend might be to invite them to a game night in your home with other Christian friends, a church member or two. Or to enjoy dinner with another joyful Christian around the table. You know, the pastor and teacher John Piper, I've already mentioned him, has preached and written much about how he sees the goal of the Christian life, of course, to be to glorify God by being most satisfied in him. Of course, part of being satisfied in God is to enjoy the life that God has given, every single minute of it. One of the reasons for enjoying life now is that one day it will slip away from you and I. We will get old and we will die. And that brings us to chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, which has the theme, expect death. That's the second point this afternoon, expect death. Instead of writing all of verses 1 through 8 in chapter 12, the preacher of Ecclesiastes could have simply written, everyone gets old and dies and it's not very fun. That's basically the summary of verses 1 through 8. But instead, the preacher wants to engage our imaginations. He wants to draw us in. He wants us to feel deterioration and death coming on. And so he uses all kinds of vivid imagery here in these verses. He begins by echoing a similar idea to what we just read about in the verses just before these, but it's slightly different. Look at verse 1 with me. He says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, Before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Not only does he want us to enjoy the life that God's given, but he wants us to remember that God is our creator, the one who made us, before we become unmade, as it were, by death. God is the one who gave us life, and sin is the reason that we will die. It's not because of God. Before the evil days of old age set in, before is repeated 
three times, the word before. In verse 2, it's before sun and the light. Remember, those were mentioned in verse 7 of chapter 11, sun and light and seeing. He says, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. And then verses 1 through 7 are all one long run-on sentence, as if he wants us to get out of breath by the time we get to the end of the sentence, kind of almost feeling like what it would be like to be out of breath when you die. Many of these phrases are describing how our bodies will grow old and begin to fall apart. And so in verse 3, he says, when the keepers of the house tremble, You see, he's creatively describing hands that shake and tremble in old age. And then he says, and the strong men are bent. Of course, legs that were once strong become weak and bent. Grinders cease because they're few. You see, he's talking about losing your teeth. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. What do you think he's talking about there? Your eyes. Eyes begin to lose their eyesight. Sight fades. And he says, doors on the street are shut. And when the sound of the grinding is low, of course, that's a reference to losing your hearing. You begin to not be able to hear what people say. You start to say over and over like me, excuse me, what did you say again? Bear with your pastor. And he says, and one rises up at the sound of a bird. Of course, he's, he's describing the inability to sleep easily and be awakened by the slightest sound, which is, of course, an irony given that you can't hear very well. <laughs> and all the daughters of song are brought low, he says. And, of course, that might describe losing your ability to sing like you used to. Vocal cords aren't what they were when you were young. Old people then, of course, become frightened about falling because a simple fall that used to just require brushing yourself off can cause broken hips or broken arms, broken wrists. That's why in verse 5 he says they're afraid of what is high. Almond tree blossoms probably refers to hair that's turning white. And when it says desire fails, or no, excuse me, grasshopper drags itself along, it's referring to just the simple difficulty of walking, getting out of bed. And when it says desire fails, it's likely speaking about sexual desire, disappearing. All these things, of course, happen, the preacher says, because man is going to his eternal home. We're going to die. And there will be a funeral for us. He says, mourners go about the streets. And lastly, in verse 6, death is described as a final breaking of different things. A silver cord is snapped. A golden bowl and a wheel are broken. And a pitcher is shattered. Death is when our bodies return to dust. And our spirits return to dust to God who gave us our spirit. Genesis 2 verse 7 describes the creation of man. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. 
That's where life was first born, in Adam. And God made us, and then in death, we're unmade, we're undone. We return to where Adam came from. And all of this, of course, I said it before, is because of sin. It's because of Adam's sin. It's because of our sin as well. After Adam and Eve sinned, God pronounced curses on mankind. And so in Genesis 3, verse 19, he says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The preacher, King Solomon in Ecclesiastes, is remembering Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You know, I feel like the Lord sent me back to the United States this last week and a half so that I would not only be a comfort to my parents and to my father as he had bypass surgery, but also so that every day of last week I would walk up and down the halls of a hospital as I prepared and thought about preaching this last section in Ecclesiastes. For three days, my father was in, in intensive care after the surgery, and each day I'd walk through that unit and I would glance into the rooms as I walked by them. And I would see a person in every single one of those rooms laying in a bed, hooked up with all kinds of cables and cords and tubes, monitors beeping and blinking with all kinds of colorful graphs that track their heartbeat and their blood pressure and all kinds of other vital signs of life. Only it's not certain that those people will be walking out of those rooms. No, I, I saw some of them, it, it didn't look promising. I saw some rooms where the, the curtains were drawn and lots of family members were in the room and there, were, there was speaking in hushed tones. You could tell death was coming. It's sobering. The graphs will go flat. The lights will be turned off. And a lifeless body will be willed out of the room at some point. Very few of us will be taken by the Lord quietly in our sleep when we're in the prime of life. It's possible. Instead, most of us are going to experience decline and affliction, pain and a dimming of all of our abilities and our senses. You know, death is unnatural. Death is unnatural. God didn't intend for it to be a part of this world. Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher has been telling us that remembering our coming death changes how we live. And that's one of the reasons that we all need relationships with people who are older than we are, preferably people who are truly in the midst of physical and mental decline. Because where they are, we'll be headed there. Is there a grandfather or a grandmother in your life, maybe, or an older relative that you need to be in touch with 
to help you remember your coming death, to serve in the last days of their life. I know so many of us are far away from our relatives, and yet we can, we can write to them, we can pick up the phone and call many of them. Perhaps you need to make sure that you go and visit them the next time that you're able to when you return home. Make time. Be with them. Let their situation remind you that you too will be going to that place of decline and eventually to death. And let the certainty of old age and death compel you to remember your creator now, in these days, in your youth. (laughs) Remembering God here doesn't simply mean saying to yourself, right, God made me. It's not simply mental remembrance. It means committing yourself to him day in and day out, setting out to live life as God designed it to be lived for his glory and for his fame, to walk in holiness and love in your work and in your relationships in every facet of your life, in fact. In verse 8, the preacher ends where he began Ecclesiastes, of course, declaring that life is a frustrating mystery. If we're simply looking under the sun, that is. And so, to make sense of it, we have to look above the sun. We have to look beyond it to know how to live this life that we've been given by God. We have to look to God himself. And we have to live in fear of him. And that's the third point this afternoon. Fear God. Fear God. Chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Now, these last verses seem to be written by a narrator and not the preacher himself. But it might be, it might be that King Solomon has created the narrator as a part of his writing, as a literary tool to get his point across to change the voice in this text. Look at verses 9 through 10. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The preacher here is teaching us and offering us as wisdom, wisdom to his original readers and to us in the form of words. Words of delight, words of meaning. They're pleasurable to read. They're catchy. They're imaginative. He wants them to stick with us. And they're true. They're true words. One of the ways that you and I can know that we truly know the God of the Bible is that we find his words to be true, we affirm them as true, and they're delightful to us. Sure, there there are passages and parts that stump us. Some of the parts of the Bible that we read are hard to understand. You've probably felt that, of course, as you've read through Ecclesiastes, but Do you find the Bible a pleasure to read and apply in your life? If not, have you really given it much of a chance? Or do you spend enough time in it in order for it to be pleasurable? 
In, order, in other words, not digesting it like it's fast food to be slammed down in the car on the way to or from work. <laughs> but like an expensive meal, rather. An expensive meal that deserves time enough to, to really be tasted and savored. In verses 11 and 12, the narrator reminds us how the Bible's words serve us and where they came from as well. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now, you see this word goads. Goads are sharp nails that are fastened to the end of a rod or a pole that's used to keep a herd of animals together and to keep them going in the right direction. And so the author is saying to us that sometimes God's words sting. They poke us. They, they cut us some. But it's a, it's a sting that's meant to protect us. There's great spiritual dangers out there that we're drawn to, and God's word protects us. You know, when you feel convicted by God's word, whether you're reading it by yourself or whether you're hearing it in a sermon or a Bible study with others, do you recognize that that convicting sting from God's word is protecting you? God doesn't simply want you to feel bad. He wants you to stop going that way and get you back on the path of obedience and love. He wants to steer you out of sin, which leads to death. Welcome that sting when you feel it. Thank God for it. Ask him to stay involved in your life through his convicting spirit. It's a blessing from him. It's evidence of his presence with you. It's God who's inspired the preacher to write what he wrote here. Ultimately, the words, the Proverbs, are from what King Solomon says is the one shepherd. The one shepherd. Do you see that at the end of verse 11? And it's this shepherd that we should fear. Look at verses 13 and 14, the very last two. They really summarize the message of Ecclesiastes and the the message that the preacher wants to convey to us. They give the conclusion that he's holding out for us. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. To fear God has been described by some as trembling trust trembling trust. We recognize that he's awesome and mighty and holy and that we're not, and so we bend the knee to him. We bow before him. We know that he's the one who gives life, and he takes life, and he is our judge. We see that in verse 14. He's going to bring everything into judgment, but, but we also recognize that he is good. He's good and that he loves us that he's our Father in heaven as Jesus taught us to pray. And so we trust him. We trust him with our lives. We follow him. And so to fear him will always lead to obeying him. 
It always leads to that. King Solomon, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, of course, was the son of King David. And he would have known and treasured the words that his father had written in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. But Solomon faced the same old age and death that he described for us in the verses just before this section. He died. And then a thousand years after Solomon, another son of David was born, Jesus of Nazareth. His words were a delight to all who listened willingly to him, and his words were always true. He said of himself in John 10, verses 14 through 16, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Do you hear that? One shepherd. That's Jesus. Solomon didn't know him by name, but he trusted in the promises of God that God would one day send a king, an everlasting king, a good shepherd who would lay down his life for the sheep, for sinful man who had gone astray. We do know his name. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the one shepherd. Do you want to fear God and obey him? Then your first step is to repent of your rebellion against God and trust in God's only son, Jesus Christ. He came into the world because death had reigned in the world since Adam and Eve rebelled against God, but Jesus, the good shepherd, embraced death on the cross, even though he didn't deserve it. He had no sin. He had always lived in obedience to the Father, but he died on the cross in order to take the punishment that we deserved because of our sin. And he rose to new life so that death would be defeated and everlasting life could be given to those of us who trust in him. And one day he will return. He will return to reward those who trusted in him and to be a judge of those who haven't. Verse 14 assures us of that. The judgment is coming. He is our creator. He is our shepherd. And he will be the judge. But those who fear him and obey him have nothing to fear from this Jesus. That's the good news of the Bible. That's the good news that Ecclesiastes is actually pointing us towards. That's the good news that Jesus fully revealed. Fearing God and obeying him by repenting and trusting in Christ. That's the only way to gain true happiness both now and certainly in the future. And that's the only way to walk through death and into everlasting life on the other side. That's the gift of God for those who trust in him, who fear him. Oh, brothers and sisters, are you fearing God in your life? 
Are you obeying him as a result? You know, one of the questions that you can ask to diagnose whether or not you're fearing God is to ask the question, when I start my week, when I wake up in the morning and I set out into my day, who am I seeking to please? Am I seeking to please the people around me with my actions and my words and my attitudes? Or am I seeking to please perhaps family members, maybe a boss, or maybe just myself? Or am I seeking to please God? Do I fear him most? Do I want him to be pleased with how I walk through my days, with the choices I make? Brothers and sisters, ask yourself that question. Walk in the fear of the Lord. Enjoy life, even though you expect death. And know that Jesus will be there for those of us who trust him to welcome us into everlasting life where there will be no death, there will be no decline, all will be joy forever and ever, far beyond our wildest dreams. Let's pray to him. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you for the words of King Solomon, which are delightful and which are true. We thank you for the words of the Lord Jesus who make it crystal clear for us that he who would seek to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for you and for the gospel will save it. Oh, Lord, this truth is the way to life. Oh, Lord, help us walk in obedience to it. In Christ's name, amen.